So hello and good afternoon and it is really is a pleasure this afternoon to have some time with Colin Adams who is from um, Enya International and who is the one of the people who taught me a lot about the Enneagram and taught me in a way that made me think about it in a very um, compassionate and people-centered kind of a way. So thank you, Colin, for all that you taught me. And I'm so glad now that my listeners can have a chance to really take advantage of your insight and uh, your wisdom and uh, see how they can use what you have to share regards building their own well-being in their own lives um, and getting to know themselves better so that they can find uh, the way within themselves to create well-being. So it really is a pleasure. Thank you for being here. And uh, I look forward to this time together. Mm, thanks, Sue. It's great to be here. Great to see you again. Thank you. Well, shall I kick off with uh, uh, the first question I'd love to ask you to try and answer is, can you explain the Enneagram and the benefits of understanding your Enneagram profile to the listeners. Some of them may not have even heard of the Enneagram before. They may not know what it's all about. And so can you give us a basic understanding of it and then what the benefits are? Mm. Yeah, I'll try to do that. It, it's, it's quite a complex model, I think, as you know, Sue. So I'll try to um, be as succinct as I can and just kind of give a flavor of the whole thing. So it's essentially a, the way we use it in terms of people development. It is a model of human behavior. That's the first thing. And it's a very accurate model of human behavior. Um, it's, it, it doesn't just describe um, patterns of behavior um, or how we show up in the world, but it also gives an indication of the reason underneath that. How is it that we behave this way? How is it that we have these kind of repetitive patterns of behavior? you know, that, that um, others can uh, start to recognize. I mean, we, we talk about people having a certain kind of personality. What we notice about them are their patterns, the patterns of behavior. So the Enneagram certainly describes that really well. Um, and it uh, gives an indication as to the underlying drivers of behavior. As well as being a, a kind of a map and a model of human behavior, it's also a, a kind of a process as well. So it's a it's a dynamic model. It, by that, I mean it implies some movement in the model. So um, when we relate that to ourselves, if you think about yourself, you don't always behave the same way. In certain contexts, you'll show up in a certain way, change the context, and you'll behave a little bit differently. So our behavior adapts to our context. And our context is our external environment that we find ourselves in. But it's also our internal one. Um, I know your focus here is well-being and, and things like our health, whether we're feeling healthy, um, whether we're feeling stressed or not, um, and all kinds of other things that are going on internally can affect our external behavior. So the Enneagram, to, to, to a certain extent, predicts how we might show up in different contexts, um, particularly when we're showing up at our best and when we're kind of at our less than best or perhaps when we're more stressed, it gives an indication of what to expect. So it's a, it's a useful model in that, in that perspective. It's quite predictive in that way. The, the word Enneagram itself, if you divide it into the two sections, the word Enneagram 
is uh, a Greek word derived from a Greek word, enia, which means the number nine. Um, and the word gram is also derived from a, a Greek word uh, that re refers to a picture of. So it's in the words like diagram and anagram. So it's really kind of a picture of nine is what the word means. So there are nine aspects to this model, essential principle aspects to the model. And these are nine, some people refer to them as types, uh, behavioral types or personality types. I tend to refer to them as uh, behavioral patterns or styles. Um, the word type for me feels a bit stuck in one place. Um, whereas we know if we observe ourselves, we flex our behavior, we adjust our behavior. So it feels more a little looser than a kind of a tight sort of type. But we're talking the same kind of language. There are nine principal patterns of behavior here that in my worldview seem to cover all aspects of human behavior. I really think that, you know, you can map any kind of um, pattern into this into this model from the most effective to the least effective, and even right down into pathologies. Um, you know, we've trained psychologists in the use of our process, the five lens Enneagram, uh, and they're quite interested more in the sort of um, less effective end, if you like the pathology end very often. So it, for me, it seems to encapsulate all human behavior from the very best to the very kind of worst and most destructive. So it is uh, quite helpful in that in that regard. Um, the 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 Enneagram can also be useful to us, not just in terms of a theoretical model, but once we start to see ourselves in it and we start to see our own predominant patterns of behavior, we start to dig a little bit deeper. So it's a little bit like a, you can think of it more like a mirror, mirroring back to us, how we kind of probably show up in the world. And some mm -hmm. parts of that mirror we're going to recognize immediately. You know, there is a degree of self-awareness from most people, pretty much everybody. But there's probably parts of that mirroring back that we don't immediately recognize that is potentially in that realm of, you know, I don't know what I don't know. I've not noticed that part of myself previously. And that's mm -hmm. where often growth and opportunity lie. And it's a little bit like Johari's window. You know, sometimes other people notice things about me that I'm totally unaware of. And that's mm -hmm. the benefit of feedback. And I think the model can really help with that. If we can start to position ourselves in the Enneagram and understand our prominent behavior, there is usually a principal center of our, of our behavioral pattern. One of these nine styles kind of is like home base that we, we drift back to when we're particularly less conscious and it's very present for us. Um, if we can understand what that is and start to get a little bit deeper into it, we learn a lot more about ourselves. So it, for me, uh, one of the greatest things about the Enneagram is this um, increasing self-awareness, self-insight. Mm -hmm. The more aware we are of ourselves, the more we can adjust our behavior. If I'm not aware of what I'm doing, then I can't change it, can't adjust it, can't do more of it or less of it. But if I become mm -hmm. aware of it, I can be intentional. So for me, mm -hmm. one of the greatest things about the Enneagram is this uh, this uh, sort of ability to deepen awareness, deepen self-insight, um, but also insight into other people you know, as well. So that's a little bit about the model. Mm, thank you for that uh, very eloquent description. And I think that uh, is what I love the most about the Enneagram um, and, and helping people to understand their natural patterns or their 
uh, natural styles is that it gives you choices and uh, you don't then have to always show up the way you would if you were unconscious, but you actually could choose a different response in any given moment. And that uh, freedom uh, and sort of opportunity really, really sort of um, attracts me to the model. And and certainly the more self-awareness you have and the more awareness you have of your blind spots, the more choices you have um, to not just do what you automatically do. Absolutely. So, Colin, um, you do um, work mostly with the Five Lens uh, program, uh, which is the one that you taught me. Um, can you share with us a little bit about the Five Lens program and also the specific benefits of that particular way of engaging with the Enneagram? Yeah, yeah. So the the Five Lens is really um, the name kind of gives something away about it. It's really looking at the individual from five different positions it's almost like five photographs of an individual from different angles and we're trying to kind of shed light on the individual so that they can start to uncover some of the blind spots but also reveal some of the strengths some of those blind spots in there there are hidden strengths as well so it's it's useful to understand what our strengths are because we need to use those we need to access them the, the resources that we already have um, and there may be other areas that we want to adjust to be intentional about our personal growth or improving or change or adapt in, in certain ways, build new patterns of behavior. So it, it's useful from that perspective. But yeah, so the five lens is really five. Uh, think of it as five photographs of, of an individual and it can be used for groups as well and teams, by the way. But let's stay with the individual just for now. Um, but it's centered on the Enneagram. This is the important thing that the whole, the, the constant thread that flows through the five lens is the Enneagram model itself. <clears throat> and the other four lenses are just trying to tease out certain aspects of, of the Enneagram and really emphasize them a little bit more. So it's quite a detailed, integrated picture that it produces. It's a, we use a questionnaire, for example, it's an online questionnaire that people can do, um, which is a five lens questionnaire, and it generates an individual feedback report, which is then debriefed with the individual. We walk them through it, as opposed to just leave them with with a with a with a report, a written report. But the other four lenses, the first one is called personal mastery, um, which is literally about, you know, how how well are we showing up in the world? How how um, effective are we at the moment? You know, are we showing up? Uh, really well and effectively are there certain parts of our lives and our patterns that are less less than effective um, in, in that sense. So it, it kind of shows up in that space. This, there are six factors in there, by the way, of personal mastery, which if you want me to, I can go into a little bit later. Mm. We really, we really <clears throat> Sorry, Sue, you were going to say? Yeah, no, I was going to say it'd be lovely if you would unpack those, right. but let's um, yeah. get the overview first, maybe, yeah. if, if yeah, sure. I think that's what you're going to do. Yeah. So personal mastery is that, that kind of gives a, a, a sort of a sense of that. The second lens, we refer to emotional resilience, emotional resilience, which is a, has a relationship to stress levels. So resilience is about our ability to cope with adversity, challenge, difficulty in our lives. So the more resilient we are, we tend to be able to cope fairly well with most things that life throws at us. It's not that we never get stressed. Of course, we will at high levels of resilience. But um, we're kind of moving through life fairly comfortably, generally, in, in a way. At the lower levels of emotional resilience, 
it tends to be a different story. It tends to, to suggest that life is quite tough and hard and difficult and challenging, and I might even feel quite stuck um, in a particular space in my life or with a particular problem that I'm experiencing that I haven't solved yet. So those are the two extremes, and it's it's graded. There are, there's a, obviously there's a almost like a continuum, if you will, between the highest and lowest end of resilience. So there is a kind of an inverse relationship to stress here. So the lower our emotional resilience, the more our kind of ambient general experience will be quite stressful. Um, the higher our resilience, the more comfortable we're going to feel, the more the more we take life in our stride, if you can sort of get that sort of context. So it has a strong relationship to our levels of stress. Those first two lenses are really mission critical uh, because another word I wanted to introduce from an Enneagram perspective is this word integration. So within each of those nine patterns of behavior that I mentioned earlier, we can operate at a really high level of effectiveness where we're really um, coping with life well, we're adding great value, we're, our relationships we, we're investing in, and just things are going really well in the highest levels. Or it can be, go right deeply down into the pathology end, which I mentioned before, which most people are not at that extreme, of course, but it's a ladder. So what we call a ladder of integration within each of the, the nine styles. Um, so we've tried to unpack what that looks like. What is integration? And these first two lenses, our level of, um, if you like, personal mastery, which relates to personal effectiveness, and our levels of stress and our experience of stress generally tend to affect how well we're showing up within our Enneagram pattern. So it unpacks that sort of concept a little bit further. Um, then we look at something which is called social drives. That's the third lens, uh, which is linked to two underpinning models, actually, one of which is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which a lot of people will be familiar with. Um, it's been around for a, a long time. But more recently, uh, Richard Barrett worked with Maslow's model and extended it to seven levels, uh, seven levels of consciousness. It's sometimes referred to, um, uh, but it's it's based on uh, current sort of needs that, that, that we have. Uh, and there are seven of these, but in the individual five lens uh, reports, feedback reports and processes that we have, we work with the first four of these. So we look at uh, things like the drive to survive. You know, how well do I, am I taking care of myself? We look at the drive to affiliate, which is around my close relationships. So when we're taking care of ourselves, we can be, pay more attention to closer relationships and, and contact in that sort of space. And then we've got the um, social drive, which is more about a connection to a broader group. So it's almost like the, the peer group, if you will, and uh, um, my reputation in that peer group and wanting to be seen as a valued member of that group and competent at what I do, et cetera. And then the, the next one that we look at moves into what Barrett refers to as the greater good. So it's not about self, this next level. It's more about con contributing to something bigger than self. So it's not usually about um, looking at a return on the deal, so to speak, uh, or return on the investment. It's not necessarily about a salary for doing things. It's a little bit more philanthropic, if you will. So it's about wanting to make a difference in the world, wanting to make it, leave a legacy, um, to, to add value to a community or an environment of, of some kind. So it, it speaks more to broader purpose, if you will, rather than a specific kind of objective. So we kind of look at that. And often in, in, uh, in personal development or you know, coaching environments, the 
the coaching theme often shows up in that sort of space in one of those levels um so it kind of bring, brings to four there Th those the first three of those levels by the way relate to what some people refer to as the subtypes in the enneagram so the drive mm -hmm. to survive the drive to affiliate the, the social drive uh, are three kinds of uh, orientations if you will um of each of the nine styles that can affect behavior to some extent uh, and we take that into consideration as well when we produce the enneagram descriptions and the feedback reports so that's the third lens the fourth so, so just yeah. to, to quickly jump in there on that um would you say that the, at the end of the day um you want to have all of those in the sort of in balance you you want to have all of them showing up in your life you don't want to have one dominating and one sort of being neglected is, yeah, is that I, I suppose in an ideal world that that would be true so the thing about those 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 first three levels that are described it's not about so drive to survive for example it's thought of as the base model because you know it's true for any species of animal if you think about it if individuals can't survive the whole species dies out essentially mm -hmm. so there is a bit of self-orientation here that's where we kind of begin and if i if i'm not looking after myself then it's that much harder to manage my relationships you know if you will or to mm -hmm. extend myself into the world so it's the base kind of model so it is important to uh, have some self-care um not to sort of overdo it such that i become this hypochondriac you know um or you know for example so to have it as a sense insensible self-care where it makes sense that i'm taking care of myself i'm looking after my health i'm looking after my financial health maybe you know which making sure that i'm balancing my books at the end of the month paying my bills and you know not getting uh too much in debt for example and also mm -hmm. just making sure that i'm safe safe and secure you know mm -hmm. um and if i'm moving into an unsafe space then i'm aware of it and i and i can take precautions so that idea of self-care is there you don't want to kind of overdo it because it, you can become a little bit um obsessed in that space you don't want mm -hmm. to underdo it either because it means that i'm self-neglecting you know in a way mm -hmm. and maybe putting myself at risk so there's a there's a an equilibrium here there's a sort of a balance that, that probably is what we need to find um so yeah we need to find balance in these three but not to not to sort of think that well i've done the self-care bit now i can move on to relationships it's mm -hmm. a sort of um transcend and include so i've always got to pay some attention to myself you know if i fall over sick or ill or something happens to me then i can't be a contribution to others you know in a way that's why it's kind of the base the foundational part of this model um, so I've always got to be aware of my taking care of me. Um, then I can start to extend myself into closer relationships, for example, and uh, pay attention to that. So I offer support to, to others, for example, but it's also a support group for me. So it's a kind of a symbiotic kind of relationship. So our inner circle, so to speak, it's our, the kind of important people in our lives. So family would mm -hmm. be in there, close friends or colleagues, that sort of thing. And paying attention to those relationships and then the broader social group you know to be seen to be um kind of competent connecting into a broader kind of community if you will uh in that sort of space and making a contribution there as well so it, it's to to deal with your question it's probably about balance it is about balance mm -hmm. and to find an equilibrium there but these things will shift around it depends on our um context again 
So <clears throat> things can happen to us in life that, um, um, like illness, illness can happen to people. So if mm -hmm. I suddenly discover that um, I've got something quite severely wrong health-wise, my drive to survive is going to be elevated quite correctly. Mm -hmm. I need to start mm -hmm. paying particular attention to that, more attention to self in a way. Or if something happens in one of my close relationships, you know, maybe I have a big conflict with my boss, you know, at work, and that's an important figure in my life. That's going to push a higher score in the affiliation uh, level. So it means yeah. that it's quite appropriate to do that because it kind of alerts mm. me to, I need to take care of that. I need to kind mm. of fix that in some way. So mm -hmm. depending on what's happening to us again, the, you know, it can go out of balance, but quite appropriately so. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. we do need to pay more attention to one of these areas than others. And even mm -hmm. life stage can affect these things. You know, if somebody is approaching retirement, for example, they might be concerned about their financial well-being or even health issues. So they, that you might see a slightly more elevated drive to survive there at that point in mm -hmm. time. So mm -hmm. the context affects behavior, and it's an important part of this whole process as well. Um, we don't just behave in a vacuum. We're affected yeah. by our external circumstances and our internal environment as well. You know, our health, our, our stress levels, our thinking, feeling kind of aspects as well. So context is really mission critical when we're looking at the five lens. Um, mm -hmm. Does that make sense, Sue? Um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I want you to finish going through the five lenses, but I just do want to um, interject just because, yeah. you know, um, when I did my um, five lens training with you, it was many years after I'd started working with the Enneagram and part of doing it, um, you guys did a, um, another Enneagram test with me. And when I got my results, um, you, it was very clear, and you did my debrief for me, uh, thank you, and, and it clearly pointed out that I wasn't paying enough attention to self-preservation, that it, the drive to self-preserve was very low. And you clearly said to me, you know, this isn't a good idea and it's not sustainable, but uh, I didn't really put it as a priority to do anything about it, and I subsequently had numerous life events which have really brought self-preservation into the front of my mind and changed that and and I so often think about how I had the insight and I could have maybe who knows prevented some of these things from happening had I been more alerted uh, by you know the, the debrief so I from my own personal experience, you know, having that insight and that information of what is in your blind spot and what you're not aware of yeah. can often give you the tools and the, and the insight to be able to change it. Um, and I've yeah. just uh, written a book on the sweet spot. So everybody in my community is very used to hearing about this balanced middle ground place where it's not too extreme on either side. So I love the way you said it's it's about finding not too much self-care, not too much self-preservation, but just the right amount or yeah. any one of the other drivers. So, yeah, no, thank you. I love the way you've explained that. And Absolutely. then do you want to carry on and share with us what the other lenses are? Yeah, so, so the, number the, three. <laughs> yeah, that was number three. So the fourth one is what we call the energy centers. <clears throat> and there are three of them. And this, this is... Um, it gives a high-level view on the Enneagram model, actually. There are three so-called centers to this model. And these three centers, or we've referred to them in our approach as the energy centers, 
You could also think of them as three kinds of intelligence that we have. So <clears throat> the five lens is not a is not an intelligence test by any means, but it kind of shows us what do we tend to rely on when we're making life decisions or big decisions in our life? What how do we do that? How do we go about that? You know, and these are three kinds of intelligence that we can draw on if we're aware of it. Very often, you find that individuals are kind of overbalanced in one of these three. In other words, they they might they might be prone to overutilizing one of the three, um, or underutilizing you know one of the others, for example. But if we're really conscious about these three, and I'll describe them to you just now, we can start to think about well, given this decision that I've got to make or this choice that I've got to make, what do I need to tap into? What do I need to go into? What do I need to refer to as a reference point? To help me make this this life choice so these are three kinds of intelligence that we if we're aware of them we can we can tap into so um, at a certain level we are aware of them but um you know it's being aware in that moment when we have to make those choices that's the key thing to remember them there so one of these things is the the what we it's sometimes called the head center so in our model we call it the intellectual center so people who are dominant in that space are kind of overbalancing that space. It's not to say, by the way, that they are more intellectual or cleverer you know, or bright mm. people. It's just that they rely, the locus of control in decision-making tends to be in the logic and the rationale and, and the analytical side of things. So they will tend to gather data. That will be their natural tendency. So... Um, if I'm going to buy a car and there are two options, how, do I, how am I going to make that choice? Well, if I was in this particular center, then I might gather data, find out about option A as much as possible, find out about option B, compare and contrast um, pros and cons, a bit of an analysis and make a logical, rational choice. And mm -hmm. there's benefit in that. And in fact, business likes to operate that way, doesn't it? You know, Strategic planning starts with very often a so-called SWOT analysis, which is really pulling data in strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Let's understand the playing field. And then let's make some logical choices about how we move forward from this from this place. So, you know, and there is value in it when it plays out in the right context. But um, in certain contexts, it's less effective. So one of the things about the head center is that it requires time. You need time to gather the data. You need time to analyze it and do the thinking around it and choose the rational, logical choice. Sometimes in life, we don't have that luxury and we need to make a decision in the moment. Otherwise, we've lost the opportunity. It's not We're not going to get that uh, opportunity again. So we have to rely on something else. And one of those aspects could be what we've referred to as the instinctual center. Sometimes it's referred to as the gut center of the Enneagram or the body center of the Enneagram. And it's, it's in our everyday language, isn't it? Our gut feel. Uh, that's what we're sort of referring to here. And it's that intuitive sense. And I think the word intuition is a, is a good one here. It's like, you know, if you meet somebody for the very first time in a social environment, you might uh, quickly, and you know nothing about them, so there's no data, you might quickly feel, this doesn't feel right. I've got to be a bit guarded here. There's something not right. So it's kind of our gut is talking to us uh, in a sense. Or the opposite, that you feel, you know, I can really open with this person, I can trust them quickly, I feel comfortable, and yet the data is very minimal. So, so it's mm -hmm. kind of an instinctual sort of response to, to somebody or some event. 
And interestingly, the neurosciences in the, in the recent years have um, found that there is uh, brain activity, electrical activity that happens in the lower gut area that um, is pretty much identical to brain activity that happens in our heads. Uh, and they've started to refer to the lower gut as the second brain. You, you're probably aware of that, I think. So. Mm -hmm. uh, so, And I saw a paper a while back, which uh, it's speculative, but this person was suggesting that possibly that's where intuition comes from. Because all of the data, if you will, that goes through to our logical brain, our brain comes through our five senses, our body. We touch mm -hmm. it, see it, smell it, hear it, taste it. And if the body is starting to process some of that data before we're really conscious of it, maybe that is what intuition is about, mm -hmm. that gut instinct, you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. so we call it bottom-up information as opposed to top-down. Yeah. And we always well, think it's coming from here downwards into the body, but it's actually, they say, 80% of it going the other way. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I noticed more recently, like in leadership development, um, this kind of um, intuitive aspect is is coming into the fore in leadership development a lot more, trying to get leaders to tune into that a little more. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think possibly because the world is rap so rapidly changing. I mean, things happen that are unexpected, you know, all the time. Look at COVID, you know, mm -hmm. beginning of 2020, yeah. everything was fine. By March, the whole world had closed down and people yeah. are working for all minutes, turmoil. Um, and then we got to adapt and adapt quickly, you know, in that, in that context. And so, so uh, th there are occasions where that instinct, if we can tap into it in leadership and, and self-leadership as well, I'm not just speaking about corporate or team leadership, but self-leadership as well, where if we can tap into it, it's helpful, particularly in rapidly changing environments, um, it's useful. So that's the second one. The third one is what we call the emotional uh, center. So it links to emotional intelligence. So people who are kind of inclined in that way tend to be a little more in touch with their uh, own emotions. It's almost like they've got the language of emotion. If you ask them how they feel, they can name it quite quickly. They know mm -hmm. how they're feeling. So they, they've got a, a sense of their emotional landscape, if you will. And I think because mm -hmm. of that, they can start to read it in other people. So mm -hmm. somebody might walk into the office in the morning and just know something's wrong. Something's happened. Mm -hmm. and they, They've not even said a word yet. And it's this tuning in to the subtle cues that give an indication of a person's, person's emotionality. And the, the great benefit there, of course, is connecting with people, making decisions about how we connect with people and when we connect with them, how we communicate with them. Um, so if I know that you, you're upset or something's uh, disturbed your world and I've got some tough feedback to give you, maybe the timing isn't right. Maybe I need to mm -hmm. offer some compassion and support as opposed to tough feedback at that point in time. So we can, mm -hmm. we can adjust our behavior towards, um, towards other people in relationships. So the EQ is, is helpful in that space, the emotional intelligence, if you will. So if we can- But we really need all of those, right? I mean, ideally, if we could make a decision using yeah. all three and, and engage with uh, everything we're doing using all three, we would be much more powerful in the world. Absolutely. And in fact, there are some people who, who work with the Enneagram just with these three centers, getting, um, you know, getting the, an individual to try and balance those three or be aware of them and, for, you know, choose the correct one at the, at the point in time. Um, I mentioned the Enneagram earlier on, there's nine styles. If you look at the actual model, I don't have an image of it. <laughs> I should, maybe I should have brought one. But, uh, uh, I can get one if we want. There are three styles yeah. in each of these three centers, which make up the, the um, 
And um, so, you know, whatever your prominent, your dominant, your, your kind of um, default Enneagram style is, and there will be one of them that is a home base that drift back to that, that we're very familiar with. Uh, it will lie in one of these three centers. So it got, kind of gives an indication of um, which of these three centers is likely to be sort of more prominent, more, more in, we're more inclined that way, you know, very often. So, um, yeah, so those are four. And then the fifth model is the Enneagram. But the, the first four really they, they sort of shine a light on the Enneagram and give an idea of um, a little bit more than just um, the dominant style. Um, it, it kind of unpacks it and teases out various aspects of it. Um, and with our approach, we, we try to individualize. That is, if we're talking about the assessment, we individualize it as much as possible. So it's not like a... Uh, two people who happen to be dominant in Enneagram 5, for example, are probably not going to get the same description description in their feedback reports because they've got uh, uh, different levels of stress or emotional resilience, different levels of personal mastery, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, as much as possible, try to tailor it. Yeah, that's a great little image there. Um, um, is it so, in the middle of the screen? I can't see what you can quite, see. Not quite. If you can, can you enlarge it a little? Maybe. There we go. Yeah, there, there we go. Is that stuff. better? Yeah. That's can good. you see it more clearly now? Yeah. Yeah, spot on, spot on. So if you look at that, uh, it doesn't actually depict the three centers, but if you look at the the styles at the top, the eight, nine, and one, that forms the what we call the instinctual center, sometimes called the gut center or the body center of the Enneagram. So those styles tend to be more in, in a little bit more in touch with that instinctual uh, aspect, the gut feel, if you will. The two, three, and four on the right-hand side tend to be more inclined towards the emotional. Well, that is the emotional center. They comprise the emotional center. And then the five, six, and seven tend to be more in the uh, intellectual or head center of the Enneagram. Sometimes referred to as head, heart, and gut, by the way. Head being the five, six, seven, heart being the two, three, four, and the gut, the eight, nine, one. Um, and those odd lines in the middle of this thing connecting the different styles that talks to the dynamic nature of this. There are There is movement in this model. So we tend to move around these lines a little bit depending upon our context. Not that we change our primary style, but we can sometimes take on some of the characteristics of a different style within the model. So it, it's, it's a dynamic model, far more than a typology, mm -hmm. I think, you know, in a way. It's a mm -hmm. process map. Yeah, mm. I found it so interesting with these heads, head, heart, and and uh, gut centers that people so often with their own body language talk about it. You know, the 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 heart centered people yeah. often explain things with their hand on their heart, and yeah. and and I think they they often manifest um, problems in their body in those centers that are either underactive. It's almost like the body's trying to call awareness and attention to that unattended uh, to center. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or otherwise yeah. they, you know, if they're overusing, for example, the head center, they might come with headaches or, um, and I, I, I mean, yeah. I'm a head center type and I, if I'm getting over my, you know, over enthusiastic about everything and over driven and, and too much in my head, I'll get headaches or, yep. you know, yep. I notice my eyes don't work properly or whatever. So um, I think it, it really is interesting how the body speaks this as well. It is. In fact, uh, you know, over time, um, 
And it's probably close to 13,000 people now that have actually uh, gone through the five lens, you know, uh, approach. And now over time, you start to notice patterns. And it's, it's it, I'm not, there's no sort of um, statistical evidence of this, but this is anecdotal, what I'm going to describe to you now. It kind of links into mm -hmm. what you just said. We do notice mm -hmm. that there seem to there seems to be a propensity for certain health issues associated with some of these uh, Enneagram styles. Uh, you know, it, it kind of just shows up every now and then, and it seems to be hovering around one of these uh, Enneagram styles. So there are some, I think there are some health um, associations here. It's almost like the mind-body connection, you know, that, that I think mm. you're trying to describe there. Uh, I think that yeah. is true, strangely enough. Mm. Um, mm. And I think it talks to this model being a pretty holistic model. You know, it's yeah. an integrated model. Um, it's not just a... I wouldn't just call it a sort of a, the way we think, you know, or the way we feel. It is that, but it's also the way we behave and how we, our relationship to our bodies and our relationship to the world in general. It's there's a lot of depth uh, to the model. Yeah, just just one point on this that so you'll see the these nine styles are numbered one through nine. It doesn't imply that one is the best or nine is the worst or you know in that sense. None of these styles is better or worse than any other. All can be. Incredibly good, you know, and effective in the world, in various contexts, and all can be diabolically bad, you know, at the other end when we're not playing out so well. So there's no better than here. It's just it just represents diversity, actually, mm -hmm. uh, different ways of looking at the world and feeling and uh, experiencing the world and interpreting the world. Um, and it's it's a model of diversity if if you want to apply it to a group of people in a sense. And it's so beautiful that that you can so clearly see how different different people are. And, um, you know, I think that's really, really important as we engage with people in the world that we don't expect everybody else to be like us or we're mindful of the fact that everybody else isn't seeing the world through the same lens that we are. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, that's a huge value that this model has to offer. Yeah, yeah. I think each of these styles notice different things in the environment they paid atten particular attention to um certain aspects of the external world and mm -hmm. and therefore interpret the external world slightly differently so this is why you can get two people witnessing the same car accident or crime or something happened and they will tell different stories you know about what mm -hmm. happened even though they were both eyewitnesses to the to the event because they're paying yeah. attention to different parts of it and this is the beauty of diversity, that if we could bring different views together without being judgmental and critical, but seeing it as all part of the whole, we might get closer mm -hmm. to the actual truth rather than holding on to our view and telling the other person that they're wrong. And this is how conflict starts to happen, of course. Um, this is why nations go to war with each other, you know, ultimately, that it's about right and wrong. Um, you know, so we start throwing rocks at each other metaphorically. And, uh, it, it, and that's what damages relationships at the end of the day. But if we can operate at a, at a higher level of integration, as it were, a higher level of personal mastery and uh, emotional resilience, and we can be a little bit more, less critical of others, but more open and uh, some humility about our perspective. And if we could combine these things, these different views, instead of holding on to our view of the world for dear life, you know, maybe maybe we'd have less conflict in the world. And in teams and organizations. And we definitely have better well-being. <laughs> definitely yes, have better well-being. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah.
Thank you, Colin. And then, so you got to number four, and then the fifth lens, of course, is the is the enneagram. It is. It is. Yeah. Um, do you want me to say a little bit more about it, uh, Sue? Uh, if you'd like. I mean, is there more that you would like to share? Um, well, I mean, there are nine styles there. Maybe. I think. I think that would be great to go through each of the nine to... styles just very quickly and. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that I really um, think you, you highlighted and you certainly highlighted it when when we did our training is that um, your default strategy, if you like, in the world is not set in stone. So once you understand that this is how you naturally behave, you can choose to draw on the other Enneagram styles and that you, you're not stuck in a box because lots of people say to me, I don't want to do the Enneagram because I don't want to be stuck in a box. But I think, you know, the way that you certainly see it and, and I see it the same way is, is, is that this is an, a, a route out of a box because um, when you don't know, you're stuck in the box because you have no choices. But once you do, you could choose to pull on some of the other things. So invitation to the listeners when you're hearing about the different Enneagram styles is to really remember that you have all of these available to yourself to a greater or lesser extent. And, uh, and so don't think, oh, that's not me. Yes, it is you. It might only be a little bit of you, but you could choose to bring it up if you wanted to in the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you can think of these as nine sets of resources that we all have. So we're not just one of these numbers or styles. We, in fact, we you'll find that if you kind of really self-observe, there'll be times when you'll notice behaviors across all nine patterns here. There are some that you're going to use more frequently that are going to be more habitual and you're more familiar with, but you do tend to use behaviors from these other, other styles as well. Um, just to kind of quickly run, run through it, bearing in mind that each of these styles has a lot of depth to each one, and you could spend a whole day just unpacking one of these uh, styles, but just to maybe touch on each of them. Um, one of the useful ways I think to try and understand the model is to start with the underlying driver. So the thing that, that we are, um, that drives our behavior. And it's, it's often a, um, I know this sounds a little bit negative, but it's a fundamental fear that we tend to have. What we tend to call in our, our model, an area of avoidance, something that we learned very early on in our lives as children, that um, it was kind of unpleasant, this thing, whatever it is, and therefore, we developed a sort of pattern of behavior that kept us away from that, that thing or entity that we, we felt uncomfortable with. Because that became habitual, it's, it starts to get ingrained. So just to go through the sequence, the Enneagram 1 tends to avoid criticism. So if you're going to avoid criticism, what's a great strategy? Well, perhaps to be perfect, to be 100% in all everything that I do, because then you can't really criticize me. So this is the type of person that aims for very high standards, um, strong work ethic, doing things correctly, uh, making sure every I is dotted, T is crossed. So a little bit of, if you like, perfectionism. Sometimes people refer to this as the perfectionist. Um, uh, you know, it's one way to kind of look at it. The, the word there is reformer. And that's, you know, on the positive side here, these are individuals that really try to change the world for the better. So they notice what's wrong in the world and they want to improve it. So they want to improve things to raise the level, raise the standard. 
So they're often referred to as reformers. <clears throat> and when they're at their best, that's that's what they do. And they make a massive difference in the world and improve things. Um, the Enneagram twos tend to avoid, interestingly enough, their own needs. So that drive to survive, one might recall, they tend to be, it's not unusual for them anyway, to be quite low on the drive to survive because they don't focus there. And instead of that, they focus on other people's needs. So they're helpers, they are supporters, they are generous supporters of other people. Um, they're focused on, on enabling others to be the best that they can be. So you'll find them in helping professions, for example. They're kind of drawn into that sort of space. But generally, they're best warm, generous uh, individuals. Um, and they're at their best when that offer of help is unconditional. It's not that they want something back, you know, on the deal. But when it's unconditional giving, it tends to be phenomenal. But they do need to learn to take care of themselves as well. Drive to achieve, uh, or the sorry, the achiever, number three. Um, these are people that tend to avoid failure. Failure is the big thing here. So the counterbalance to that is to focus on success and achievement and uh, achieving goals and you know uh, hitting targets and doing well in that sort of space. So that's the achiever. They kind of a tendency to overdo it. And so the kind of idea of the workaholic, you know, that's when they get out of balance, when work becomes absolutely everything. And sometimes relationships can take a um, a backseat in that, in that space. So that's the achiever in another way. But at their best, they get the balance right. So, yeah, achieving is important, helping others to achieve as well, but also managing relationships in an authentic way is helpful here as well. The individualist, the avoidance here is, the word that I tend to use is meaninglessness, things without meaning, which implies that, the counterbalance is go for depth, go for meaning, go for purpose, go for deep, deeply understanding things. Um, so they're often drawn to things like philosophy and um, deeper conversations with people as opposed to casual light conversations. So they really want to get to know others in a, in a deep way. Um, so often very creative as well. Um, they're often you will find them quite often as artists or uh, creative or even even not if it's not even if it's not art it could be entrepreneurial starting businesses but cre creating something um they often feel a little different from other people they feel like the word there is individualist they feel a little bit mm, uh, separate from others and the need to connect and the need to create is very uh, powerful there they bring beautiful things into the world um, the Enneagram 5, uh, here it's called the investigator, yeah, quite an introverted style. This is your analyst, your data collector. They tend to be a little bit um, avoidant of the social space. So it can get a little uncomfortable in a social environment. Um, and so they can be a little bit more withdrawn, but they focus on data and information and analysis quite a lot, often great observers of the world. Um, noticing what goes on they can bring great insight and wisdom if we can remember to bring that voice in but sometimes because they're a little bit more introverted they don't automatically bring that voice in so we've got to remember to to invite them in and create space uh, for that but pockets of wisdom very often in teams and organizations and, and families the enneagram six the avoidance there it tends to be related to risk or danger 
um, situations. So there's some caution here. So they tend to look at the world and uh, notice what could go wrong or whether risk and dangers could be, and they attempt to keep keep uh, themselves and other people safe. So they will try to navigate around areas that are risky or dangerous or put um, uh, contingency plans into place that tend to keep themselves and others safe. So this is not a uh, an independent style so much. Great team players, uh, great in, in sort of relationships, very relational style, but it's about keeping self and others safe. Not to the extent of over-caution and not doing anything, but being um, sensibly cautious about things and moving forward. So they create a lot of safety in the world. Is, and, and a lot of courage here as well, by the way. This is the style that understands risk and danger and fear. Um, and when they don't allow that to stop them and they still move through, move forward, move through the problem, I think that's probably where courage lies in the Enneagram. The seven, they tend to avoid... Um, the word is pain really i suppose emotional pain particularly and so rather than dwelling on pain they tend to do the opposite they dwell on the positive things the the optimistic things the visions of the future the the um the the possibilities that the future could hold and they're often visionaries they can paint a great picture of the future this is more extroverted space so they can communicate their positive view of the future to others and rally others around a vision. They're often visionary type leaders, if you wanted to position it into a leadership space. Um, they sometimes need to slow down a little bit. They can be sort of very fast-paced individuals. So sometimes, they, if they're not careful, they can leave people behind because they move forward so quickly. So you've got to remember to move with people if they're part of a team. Um, they're, they're probably a little bit more of a risk taker certainly more than the Enneagram 6. And so they're willing to take calculated risks. So you often find them as entrepreneurs, starting businesses, you know, in that in that kind of uh, environment. Um, Enneagram 8 tends to avoid, the word is vulnerability, um, being seen to be weak or vulnerable in some way. So they tend to show up in a more um, assertive way, um, a stronger way. They present a strong image to the world. Sometimes it, um, they overdo it and it can become, it can feel a bit intimidating if, it, if they overuse that sort of uh, power that they've got personal power. But when they start to use that influence in service of others and the world in general, it can be really an incredible influence. You, it, it can turn into what I would think of as the servant leader, you know, in the world, very, very strong leader, very assertive leader, but it doesn't feel dangerous to others. It feels supportive and it feels like it's um, for the benefit of everybody. So um, it's not damaging in that in that regard at their best. Then you got the, the, the final one there, the nine. Again, you can see it's often referred to as the peacemaker. These are individuals that um, if you read a lot of the books, you'll probably find that they refer to the avoidance of conflict here for the Enneagram nine, which is not untrue. But I think underneath that, uh, if you, you, I think you've got to ask the question, well, what, what is it about conflict that's such an issue for the Enneagram 9? Well, I think the issue is here uh, is about the loss of relationship or the damage to relationships. So conflict can cause damage to relationships. It can, it can sever relationships and leave an individual feeling abandoned and isolated and alone. So this is the person that avoids that. And that is why 
conflict is an issue. So this is a person who's relationally orientated. They want to maintain relationships. Um, harmony and peace are the important things here. This is one of the great things that they bring into the world. And if you look at the world at the moment, we need peace. There's a lot of turmoil and aggression in the world, in families even, in communities, in nations. So we need peace. And this is a great attribute that, that they bring. So they're almost naturally diplomatic. They can help others resolve conflicts. They're non-judgmental, so they tend not to take sides. I think it's metaphoric that it's over the center of this circle. It's the only one that's that's over the center of the circle in the sort of balance point between left and right or east and west. And it, it kind of implies that access to both in a, without being biased one way or the other. And I think that's that's one of the great gifts there. That's how they bring peace. They are able to help others find common ground, you know, and um, and do it calmly, you know, in a way. So they bring peace into the world. So that's very, very quickly a little tour. Of that. Remarkable. I love how you've done that, Jeeves. You are extremely able to do that in a short space of time. So thank you for that. And, and I'm just thinking... Um, in a way, if you could understand yourself and your um, your natural strategy, then it's so clear that that would help you in the world, that that would help you in your life, because it's almost like coming home, seeing how you um, tend to want to behave and how you do behave and understanding it within the context of what you might be unconsciously trying to avoid. Mm. And yeah maybe take that one step further understanding that the essence quality that's sitting inside of you um is the thing that you're bringing to the world and and that uh enables you to be more fully who you were born to be i think so can you talk a little bit to that colin yeah yeah no i can uh, and i think it relates to what you were saying earlier about you know being in a box you know being stuck in a box being this is why i kind of it's a personal thing and i'm not it's not critical of other people that use this sort of language but i tend to not use the word type because again it feels like you know my feet are stuck in concrete and i kind of can't move i'm stuck in this kind of space and for me that's a, that feels too limiting in a way sort of language that's why i like a looser feel like style or behavioral pattern it's like you know today i'm kind of wearing a gray shirt Tomorrow I might be wearing a blue shirt, but I'm the same person, but I'm just adjusting my, my look and feel, as it were, you know, my pattern of behavior in, in a sense. So we can adjust. We're not just one of these, these numbers. I think that's important. Certainly one of them will be our dominance, our, our primary style, no question about that. But there is more to us than that. And I, I often think of this model, I know it's always represented like this on, as a flat model, circular model, two-dimensional. But if you could imagine it as a cone, so, th so the circle that you can see there is the base of a cone that actually comes out of the screen to a point. You know, like these cones they put in the road when they're doing kind of roadworks kind of thing. Mm -hmm. For me, that's not a bad representation because no matter where I start, no matter what my primary style is, if it happens to be three, for example, um, as I start to integrate, in other words, my personal mastery increases, that's lens one in our five lens model. And my emotional resilience um, starts to increase. Those two things combine to, to, to um, enhance our level of integration. So as we do that, if Enneagram three is my starting point, 
as I start to integrate, it's like moving up the side of the corn. If you can imagine that. So it's coming out of the screen. But as I come out of the screen, I'm moving more over the center of the model. So it's making me a little bit more equidistant to these other styles, which which meta, I'm using metaphor here, obviously, but it kind of, I'm less anchored, I'm less stuck in that threeness. It's always going to be there, but I've now got a little bit more access to these other styles. I'm closer to them somehow. So you find that at higher levels of integration, it's less easy, I think, to spot a person's primary Enneagram style because they're, they're more flexible. They're not as stuck in that box doing the same thing over and over again, that pattern of behavior that happens to be threeness in the example I've used. When they're constantly doing that threeness, it's very easy to spot it because that's what they're doing much of the time. But as they start to integrate and they start to incorporate some others of, some other aspects of this model into their um, repertoire of behaviors appropriately, you know, depending upon the context and, and very often intentionally. So our levels of consciousness have improved, our intentionality has improved. There's more choice. I think you used that word earlier, Sue. I'm not as, um, I'm not as unconscious. I'm not as reactive. Um, I'm choosing behavior appropriately for the context that I'm in. Then it's less easy to spot my primary style. And I think that's often the case at high levels of integration. So with integration, for me, comes more flexibility, more intentionality, more awareness, more consciousness of self, more awareness of others as well. And, and you know, you used the word compassion earlier as well. And that's a great word for me, in my worldview as well about this model. You know, it allows me to be compassionate, first of all, um, for me, about myself. I can look at myself warts and all, right? Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and kind of be okay with that and be compassionate with myself and gentle with myself around it. And then and that enables me to do the same for other people, you know, without necessarily judging them or condemning them or poking fun at them. You know, we've all got our fragilities, we've all got our strengths. And um, if we can just be with them um, as opposed to, you know, turn away from them or push them away or if we incorporate them into our way of being, one of our, our first factor in personal mastery is called self-acceptance. Can I accept that? Yeah, I've got some strengths. I've got some things that I'm not very good at as well, by the way. You know, and can I just be okay with that and make some choices around it? And I might choose to work on certain things and not on others, but be intentional as opposed to judgmental and hyper self-critical and not wanting to look at myself in that in that regard, that sort of thing. So for me, that's what happens at high levels of integration. We are more compassionate we are towards self and others. We're more, we're more intentional, we're more conscious. We can, we can make good choices, better choices for ourselves and choose how we respond to other people in a more appropriate way. Mm. That's how I yeah, say. thank you. Thank you for that, Colin. And, and one of the things that I think underpins well-being is that we're able to unashamedly be who we really are in the world and, and live our own truth and and i think um when we can bring that self-acceptance and 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 self-awareness without judgment to ourselves then it enables us to not try and be like everybody else or not try and show up as a shapeshifter trying to be as people expect us to be but rather to actually delve inside and find the golden buddha that lies inside that 
it sort of is constructed of all our magnificent strengths yeah. and weaknesses and and be that in the world which i think is so much less effortful and and therefore enables us to find better well-being because we're not wasting all our precious life energy trying to show up in a certain way or hide away our certain selves but actually i think this gives us some sort of a route map to being able to show up as as we truly are yeah and yeah yeah some people refer to it as almost a journey home you know mm -hmm. that we that we've got to do so it's, it's almost as if we come into the world as a as a soul as a as a consciousness you know in a way um and a sort of a pure consciousness we haven't interacted with the world yet but um over time we do interact and the, there is a kind of a process there where the ego starts to form you know we first get identified with our physical bodies as an infant you know um and that gets and then we start to see ourselves as a separate entity uh, rather than just part of this amorphous whole kind of thing and that gets reinforced even further through various experiences that we have and with the ego starts to form and we get this self-identity of, of who we think we are and we start to show up in a certain context um, we learn from our, from our family from our, the culture that we're in from societal norms from our socialization our education about how we're meant to behave and we kind of absorb that in and we slowly move away from who we really are and into this uh, individual who's kind of kind of manufactured this sense of self identity if you get what i'm saying and then we start to portray that you know in the world and there are times when that works and there will be some strengths in that but with times when it doesn't work uh, but it's a kind of a again some people refer to it as the false self it's the manufactured self it's not that essence that we came into the world with and we've kind of lost touch with that in in a, in a way and i think part of the journey some people have described it this way is to almost delay it you know take take all these layers off that that we've put into place we've manufactured in a way and what about getting back to that true essence who we really are are, are how we were meant to be in the world kind of thing remember one person describing it like a light bulb you know and um over time you know a layer of paint goes over the light bulb and then maybe another layer of paint and another layer of paint and that light gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer you know who we really are we show less and less to the world and it's almost like we've got to strip layer by layer off the paint off this thing to to get back to our real essence who we really are who we were meant to be in the world as opposed to this manufactured self because society kind of tells us that's how we we're meant to be sort of thing mm. you know mm. absolutely i always say we spend the first 18 years of our lives being programmed into a way of being and then we have to spend the rest of our lives trying to unprogram ourselves yeah, yeah. come back and to who we started as yeah i actually think that's what this so-called midlife crisis concept is all about by the way mm. as well where we get to a point in our lives where we might be doing really well you know doing really well in my career i'm getting acknowledged you know maybe even held up as a role model in certain ways but i suddenly discover it's not doing it for me anymore something's missing you know it's almost like I, there's this realization that i've lost touch with who i really am and you, you sometimes hear it in people's language you know i need to find 
myself. I need to go to India and discover myself or quit my job and kind of rediscover who I am. And I think it's this realization that, you know, we need to sort of get back in touch with who we were meant to be, you know, um, rather than, you know, just going to business school to study accountancy because my parents said it was a good idea. You know, so I did that and it set me off on a career path. It wasn't my choice. Um, it was kind of scripted into it. And my boss said, well, that would be a good career direction for you. So I take it and I go that way. And it's, I'm kind of reacting to external forces as opposed to, you know, what, what works for me best. What about my own locus of control, you know, in a way. And I think sometimes we get scripted into our lives by external sources, meaning well, you know, well-meaning sources, but um, um, sometimes we can get channeled in a direction that perhaps ultimately we find it's not really who we are in, in a sense. And perhaps that's where the midlife crisis, which I think is a crisis of identity, actually, who am I really is the question there. Um, I think that's possibly why that happens. And also we, we become scripted into it because we want approval, we want... Um, yep to be liked we want to you know be accepted and yeah and it affects our well-being i just wanted to bring it back to that sort of concept mm -hmm. if we if we follow a path that doesn't feel right you know it's like walking around with a stone in my shoe i can i can walk around in it but it it's irritating it's not doesn't feel comfortable you know in a way mm -hmm. um this it, it sort of damages our well-being our emotional well-being our mental well-being even our, our physical well-being sometimes you know and it can do damage to our relationships because i get snappy with with my family members or upset with them too quickly and you know so these different aspects of well-being i think start to be affected if if we're not sort of in a way true to ourselves as opposed to being inauthentic in a way you know doing it because somebody else told me i had to do it as opposed to aligning with how I was meant to be in, in a way. And, and I think also we deny the world and our close people the opportunity to, to have the real present version of ourselves. So yep. they get a lukewarm, as you said, a light bulb that's dimmed by, you know, all this layers on it uh, instead of the real version of ourselves, which is a travesty, I think. So I think that's part of the midlife crisis. And maybe it's part of because that was my last question i wanted to bring to you is what do you think is the reason that mental health um is so challenged in this uh, world today can you suggest an answer to that so many people are really battling with their mental health and um and, and it, it, it seems strange because in a way we're living in, in relatively speaking easy times i know there's endless challenges in terms of the, the constant uh, challenge for our attention um, and constant demands and uncertainty but in reality we're not in a world war well not unless we live uh, somewhere other than um you know the western world and um, so you know, why do you think mental health is such a thing um, at the moment? People are struggling to the degree that they are. It's mm. a big question, I think, Sue. Um, mm. You know, uh, it's got to do with, I think, pressure in in a way. You know, it, it's got it's linked into stress. You know, I believe. You know, I did a 
in fact, you might have seen it. I, I kind of wrote a little uh, piece on stress and burnout a little while back and did some mm. masterclasses on, on that sort of topic. And when I was mm. kind of doing the research for that, I mean, if you look at all of the, the global statistics on burnout and stress, it's uh, radically increased over time and it's continuing mm. to increase. So it, 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 it implies that stress, something is causing more stress in people's lives, in more people's lives, um, that affects people's mental health, and I think physical health as well, by the way, and other aspects. It disturbs our whole world, actually, when we get into that sort of space. And I think there's a lot, a, a lot linked into it. I think, um, you know, um, e even sort of economies and job security, you know, um, um, the way people work these days. You know, there are. I can't think of a of a nine till five job anymore you know we don't work in those sort of parameters we get outcomes we've got to achieve and we've got to achieve them within a certain deadline and if that means working 15 hours a day for six months then that's what we do you know and mm -hmm. um so work has taken on a different um way of of being you know gradually over time you know as i say i can't think of a sort of a nine to five job there's very few of them these days so I think the pressures of work, I think that the, the 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 pressures of the economy, you know, um, things like inflation and affordability and financial taking care of one's financial uh, situation, um, uh, the, you know, there was a time, I suppose, decades and decades ago when, you know, traditional families existed where usually the female version, the mother, would stay at home, look after the kids. The dad would go out and work, and one person working in a family would be enough to provide for a family. There's that's not the case anymore. Most families that I'm aware of, both parents, if it's a if it's an intact, you know, both parents present, are working. You know, typically, um, children are kind of taken care of elsewhere, and sometimes parents not even raising their kids. Other people are, you know, in in a sense. So the family units are different from what they used to be. A lot more pressure on families you're seeing a lot more broken families you know around um for all kinds of various reasons you've got things like social media uh happening which is a, a, i suppose a relatively new phenomenon um the the access to information which very often is information overload i find you know that you, you put anything into the an internet uh, system or a search engine you'll come up with thousands sometimes tens of thousands of references to that topic so we're kind of bombarded with with lots of information a lot of people trying to grab our attention um, and all of this in a way takes us away from who we are we're just trying to cope we're trying to cope with all of this stuff um, and keep head above water um, and I think that's probably part of it. We lose touch with ourselves. We're just kind of so um, engaged with with um, treading water, you know, um, staying alive, staying staying sort of um, reasonably okay, without thinking about um, you know who am I really, you know, and the kind of uh, conversation we're, we're having here. It just feels like there is so much going on in the world, even the news you know the news is negative pretty much you know the newspapers the tv news 
they bombard us with negative information as well about what's going on in the world, which again adds pressure and stress and people get concerned about that whole thing. In South Africa right now, you know about the ESCOM scenario, the the um, load shedding, the uh, hours and hours every day when we don't have electrical power, having to cope with that reality. We've just come through the whole COVID uh, situation, which added huge stress on a lot of people um, mm. for various reasons. Crime. Loss of life, yeah, cry, yeah, and and and. Mm. So mm. I think there's just so much going on mm. in the world around us. It's a little bit like a tornado, and mm. we've got to kind of survive in this whole thing. And I think, you know, mental health, emotional health, well-being, sometimes pays a price. You know, it takes mm. a back seat. Um, and so the the anecdote, in in uh, you know, knowing all that, what can people? do i mean i think one of the things that they can do is to is to try and come back to themselves try and use information as this enneagram um and five lens um view of themselves can help them do but try and reconnect with who they are in spite of what the world is like i think so because i mean what happens is that all of that sort of tornado draws us away from ourselves we're kind of so focused on What's happening in the world? What's going on? Finding out what's happening, etc. Hearing what's happening and the negativity, we can get just absorbed with that, and we lose touch with self. I think. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that one of the ways is, and I know you're very focused on well-being. This idea mm -hmm. of well-being in a holistic way, um, mm -hmm. not just mental well-being, um, but emotional well-being. You know, physical well-being, spiritual well-being. Uh, all of this is is really significant. So coming back to self again and not losing ourselves in all of this, I think is important. You know, mm -hmm. I, I really do. And um, uh, I know it's a lot of, a, a big part of the work that you do. And it's certainly mm -hmm. a big part of the work that we do. And it's about getting people grounded again, getting people to be present, not just, you know, absorbed with this stuff and taken off off balance you know, quite so much, but finding that solid, grounded space, which mm. is about their identity. Who am, who am I really in the middle of all of this? Mm. What are the strengths that I have that I can apply, the resources that I have that I can use? What are the mm. non-strengths that I have? And do I need to develop um, something there? Do I need to grow in certain ways in order to be more comfortable in this in this space that we're in? Um, so I think being intentional about our own growth and development for me is mm. significant. That helps us cope mm. with with um, with life. Um, yeah. And it's there's a lot going on in in many many people's lives these days. Life is complex. Mm. It's not it's not a simple thing. Yeah. In, in short, not leaving yourself abandoned in the world while you are attending to everything outside of you. So yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. Colin, we could talk for the next six weeks. I, I would never run out of things to discuss with you. And I love hearing the way that you explain things. Um, I loved hearing how you explained the Enneagram, even after 25 years of working with it. Uh, I still uh, learn more whenever I hear someone uh, explain it. And uh, I really, really appreciate your insight, um, your wisdom and your time. And uh, I hope that we can have another conversation in a few months' time and, and take this to a deeper level. But Fantastic. in the meantime, yeah. 
Thanks, sir. It's thank been great to speak with you again. Great to connect and uh, lovely conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And how can people get hold of you is what I want to say before we close down and um, because I'm sure there are going to be some people who are very interested to um, find out more about the Five Lens program. Of course, um, you do need somebody to facilitate your debrief and I'm available to do that, but so are you. So how would people get in touch with you should they want to do it through you? Yeah, no, thank you. So um, pr probably one of the easiest ways is, is our website. So um, we've got a five lens website um the, the, it's five lens.co.za very simple five lens.co.za five lens all one word.co.za um and there's there's information about the five lens there there's various articles there is even um opportunities to sign up for our trainings if you wanted to do that so um that would be probably the best the best place yeah awesome Thank you, Colin, and uh, I wish you a really great rest of the day. Thank you, and to you as well, Sue. Thank Take you so care. much. You too. All Take right. Care. Bye All for right. now.